Instead of focusing on winning arguments, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and marketing and how we can use them to win in the world of politics, teaching you how to meet people where they're at on the issues they care about. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Well, happy Friday there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, and thank you for joining us on, of course, another fun-filled episode. I am, as always, your humble host, but I am, in fact, only your humble host for this really quick intro because today you guys are in store for a great episode where you're joining our friend Hunter Wynn and his amazing, amazing podcast, the Where'd You Go podcast. Now, Hunter's been doing stuff here at the uh, the Brian Nichols Show behind the scenes, and uh, all the while, he and his wife have been touring all across Europe, and uh, he, with that, has been having some great conversations. On today's episode, I want to go ahead and share a conversation that Hunter had with former NBA player Paul Shirley, where they catch up on uh, all that's been happening in the world, sharing some stories from his time as a professional basketball player in Europe, uh, and then also discussing uh, what's it like playing for teams owned by Chinese oligarchs, dodging projectiles while playing on the court, and much more. So guys, if you enjoy today's episode, please do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts or whatever it is that you listen to your podcast and make sure you hit subscribe for uh, Hunter's The Where'd You Go podcast. So with that being said, onto the show, Hunter Wynn here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Where'd You Go podcast where we talk to interesting people doing interesting things in interesting places. My name is Hunter. I'm the host as always. And today I'm going to share my experience as a fan at a EuroLeague basketball game. I've been a basketball fan as far back as I can remember. And I've always wanted to go to EuroLeague basketball game. And I finally had the chance back in December when I visited Greece. I saw two of the league's premier teams in a matchup, Panathinaikos versus Barcelona. The stadium was located in a giant Olympic sports complex. So you can imagine, I was pretty lost when I got there. As you walk through the complex, you notice there's a giant cycling arena, a giant Olympic pool, and all sorts of crazy other buildings that I just couldn't wrap my head around. So having no clue where to start, I just tried to find some basketball fans and just followed them. When I got in towards the gates, there was a long line for the security. Everyone was just trying to file into two little lines. Police presence was heavy. There was about 40 armed policemen right around the gates. But the security was pretty relaxed. Nobody pat me down. There was no metal detectors. I just scanned my mobile ticket and walked right through the turnstile. My first moments as walking through the arena, I noticed all the graffiti on the wall. Back home, I'm used to seeing the arena spotless compared to what I saw. I could already tell my experience was going to be 10 times different than it was back home when I go to basketball games. When I sat down in my seats, I couldn't help but notice the big fan section in the corner. Everyone was already chanting and beating drums and going off on their megaphones. The crowd was literally chanting the entire game. They never stopped, even during halftime. Everyone was still singing. At halftime, I grabbed some concessions, and boy, were they pathetic. You had a wide variety of options, just three different flavors of chips and two different sodas without ice, of course. Oh, in the team shop, it was just one giant table. It looked more like a merch stand for a band. The style of play is just a little bit different. Of course, the talent levels from the NBA are vastly different. But I still had a very good time, and I loved watching the game. It was a close game. Panathinaikos fell short, which was the hometown who I had to root for. But it was a moment I would never forget. I got to cross it off of my bucket list. I actually really enjoyed the no-frills environment. Everyone was engaged in the game. 
The fans were just chanting, singing, dancing, clapping, and of course, booing when things didn't go their way. Now that you got my perspective from a fan's point of view, we're going to hear from our first guest on the show, who's had some experience in the NBA, as well as playing overseas in Europe. His name is Paul Shirley. He used to play for the Phoenix Suns. You might remember him. Also, shout out to Matthew Fouts, my Twitter friend, also known as Old Man Suns Fan. He gets the assist for getting Paul on the show. Matthew, you're the real MVP. If you're watching, don't forget to subscribe, comment, share, like, do anything that's going to make this podcast grow. So with that being said, let's get on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Where'd You Go podcast. My name is Hunter. I am the host. And today I am actually recording from Copenhagen. It is 1.30 in the morning. So a little bit late or it could be early. Depends on what, what you're looking at. But yes, it is a late night for me, but that's okay. Um, we are actually making history today with our very first guest, and he's a former basketball player and current awesome dude. Paul Shirley, thank you so much for joining today. I'll take current awesome dude, put that on a business card, move forward. <laughs> yeah, I would too. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. I, I, so how I know you is from the Phoenix Suns uh, basketball team. Uh, was it 0405 you were on the team? Very good. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, a bit of a Phoenix Suns junkie. So, um, yeah, I knew you from that season. That was uh, back in the Steve Nash run and gun era. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I was actually in Half Price Books, just browsing around on my weekly trip. And it came across your book, Can I Keep My Jersey? I'm like, dude, I know that guy. He was on the Suns. <laughs> so bought it immediately. And uh, I read it all in one week. So it was a, it's a really fascinating journey. And then ever since we started doing our trip here, um, I was like, you know what? I got to put together a short list of, of people to interview. And you were definitely on there. So uh, seriously, yeah, thank you so much for joining. Um, and we got a lot of questions I want to ask you. So hope you're ready uh, to answer I'm, them. I'm ready. I'm uh, <laughs> pleased that you found my book in a half price bookstore in some ways. <laughs> That could be insulting, but in a lot of other ways, it means that it reached a level of saturation where people were finally like selling it back. That's actually <laughs> like, so I feel like that's a good spot to be in. There's certain books that, I mean, my book's not in this level, but there's certain books that you always see in used bookstores. Um, and some of them, you can tell they just printed way too many copies and they had to just do, just do something with them. I think there's that, uh, What's that author's name? Uh, Michael Shaban or Shaban or however you say it. He wrote a book called The Yiddish Policeman's Union, I think. <laughs> it's so random. They came after, he wrote a book called The The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay that was like a huge hit. And then I think with the next one, they thought it was going to sell a billion copies and it did not. And then it was just everywhere in used bookstores because they just had to get rid of them. So anyway, I'm not that kind of book, but still, <laughs> good that I exist. Yeah, no, I, I was I was pretty pleased and like, hey, I'd pay full price for this, but hey, if it's half price, hey, even better. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, before we get into your journey as a professional basketball player, you both played in the NBA and the Europe. I kind of wanted to dig into what are you doing now. Um, that's a good question, considering the title of your podcast. Um, <laughs> Where'd you go? Yeah, uh, I still write books. But I have definitely moved beyond that um, as any kind of main income because it's really, really hard to do. Um, 
into, I, uh, we help people through this company I run called The Process build habits and routines so they can focus, work deeply and accomplish big projects. So a lot of our members are uh, writers and uh, freelancers, creatives. Uh, then we also work with businesses in the same regard. So a lot of a lot of staff members are increasingly disconnected from like why they're doing things. Uh, and so we're helping them as, you know, I would say often fall in love with their process. So like, what do they like about the day to day and how can we help them focus and and uh, actually accomplish those things. Yeah, do you guys get a lot of remote employees uh, to join? Yeah, that's that's our main market. Um, this was actually something, so I used to run a space in Los Angeles called Writer's Block that was a co-working space specifically for writers. Um, and even pre-COVID, we had started this other company uh, just because we had started to see that like our model, which is structured sessions um, of, in that model, physical space working, applied not just to writers, but to all creatives and really to all kind of digital nomads. Like I've been, I've been a digital nomad since before it was a thing. Um, <laughs> and I think my partner and I were noticing like, oh, there's a lot more of these people all the time. And now we're seeing the proliferation of that almost to a degree that is absurd, right? Like, I'm in coffee shops now and people just take calls in the coffee shop and I want to <laughs> slap them across the head. Cause I'm like, Hey, look, we made a deal with these coffee shops, which is we would not be obnoxious and they would let us sit here for the price of a coffee. They are going to quickly take that away, which I think is going to happen soon, which is a whole tangent. But um, <laughs> anyway, there are a lot of people in the world and have been for a long time like you and, and like me and in certain por portions of my life where you are, bopping around, trying to find a place to work. And what we enjoy about what we do in the physical space and online is just showing people they can get a lot done in a short bit of time if we can help them focus. Yeah, I, I know that I can uh, attest to that. It's It's been a hard adjustment because I'm, I'm, I love being in work and you know, being around people and I thrive off that kind of culture. Now transitioning by force, kind of before by COVID, when I was previously with my previous job, that kind of forced us home. So I kind of struggled in, you know, staying connected and, uh, you know, all that. And then it disrupts your work-life balance. Uh, you got to try to focus while you're at work even more now because you got distractions. You got, you know, family members. You got your phone with you. You got nobody over you. So I can definitely see how that could be very advantageous for people who are working remote. Um, yeah, it's, it's a struggle for everybody. I was at a coffee shop today and these two girls were sitting one table down and I heard one of them say, man, I just, I can't focus at home. <laughs> and, um, part of me wants to just say, well, duh, like, what did you expect? Um, but I'm also have to realize that not everybody has seen what I've seen. Um, I've, I've kind of been doing this kind of thing, even, you know, even as a basketball player, a lot of my job was mustering willpower, right? In the summers, I didn't want to go to shoot by myself or lift weights or whatever. And it's hard. And I think people are seduced by uh, the prospect of being their own boss and they forget just like, it's a lot more difficult than they realize. I would say that the tricky thing about being on your own is you have to come up with the to-do list and then you have to do the to-do list. And that's actually a pretty big double step, you know, like lots of people want to have just a to-do list and then they knock things off. 
or they want to give it to other people. But when you're doing it for yourself, it's both. Yeah, no, I've been, I'm very guilty of making lists because I love to make lists, but <laughs> the next step is actually going out and doing it because you tell yourself, oh, it sounds nice. Like I'm thinking about doing something. I'm thinking about making a change, but the biggest step is actually going out and doing it. And I think creating good habits is almost just the whole thing is just creating positive habits to break, you know, out of your bad ones. It really is. I, um, right now, as we record this, I'm in the midst of recording the audiobook for the process is the product, which is the nonfiction book that a lot of this is based on. I do not like recording audiobooks. I've done one. I did stories. I tell on dates, which was my second book. And I'm noticing even with this, right? Like I've done this before. I've done a lot of podcasting. You would think that I would be pretty good at whatever recording my own words, <laughs> but I've had to really think about how can I, using the constraints that are, are, that exist, get this done in a way that won't take two months. Right. So I'm recording at our headquarters in here in Denver. I know that my guy who opens the building for our customers, our members to come in, he's going to get there at eight. So that means I need to get there at seven 15 to have a half hour to record as much as I can and then save it for the next day. And a lot of that is I've set up that, deadline for myself, but I know I got to be done by 7.50. So that means I need to start by 7.15. So that means I need to get out of bed at 6.15 to get there. And then I got to figure out like, well, how am I going to make this palatable to myself? Because I don't want to do it, obviously. And it's <laughs> early in the morning. So I've been rewarding myself by taking myself out to breakfast. So now I have a little, like, this little mini for two weeks, kind of this little miniature habit that's like a a slightly different way of looking at the beginning of my day from what would normally be the case. And it, you know, again, I'm captain willpower over here, but even I still have to think about like, well, how am I going to make this repeatable and reasonable so that I can do it day after day. Otherwise, like everybody, I would just put off like, well, I'll, I'll record, you know, I'll record two hours at the end of the week instead of in 30 minute chunks. Now, this doesn't mean it'll be good necessarily, but at least I have a system for how I can accomplish it. Yeah, no, I can appreciate systems. And, uh, you know, I usually try to have a system on whatever I'm doing because it creates habits, it creates good habits, and you got to make sure it's one that's, you know, uh, productive. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. And I'm really excited for that uh, to come out. So you're still in the process of writing it or you finish it and you're just waiting to publish no, the book's already out. Um, we're we're oh, doing out. the audiobook now. So the book came out in December of last year of 2021. Um, okay. And now we're doing the audiobook, uh, which is terrible. <laughs> well, just wait until it's finished. Yeah, it's, it's a work in progress. That's right. <laughs> it's part of the process. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm glad that you shared uh, what you're doing now because it sounds really, really beneficial for lots of people in the world today, especially because of the the whole COVID thing and everyone being forced to work from home uh, or just, you know, just the expansion of, uh, you know, everyone working um, wherever they want, which is pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to talk about and we're going to try to keep this focus on travel now. Um, so after you played at Iowa State, what was your first experience? Like you, you, you were trying to go to the draft. You were trying to get signed by a team. What was that little process like? It was that largely because we were really good my senior year. I think we ended up 
we ended up losing in the first round of the NCAA tournament as a number two seed, which was not ideal, but we were still, you know, top 10 basketball team in, in college basketball. Um, I and two of my two, my two of my teammates who were not necessarily first round draft picks got invited to the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament, which was kind of a showcase for um, college seniors who were in that bubble between maybe getting picked in the second round of the draft or going overseas. Right. And so I went off to that, which happened, I think, in May of my senior year. Uh, with a bit of a devil may care attitude, I had not really loved the way I had to play in college because I was uh, more relegated to role player status. So I went to this camp not really caring whether I impressed anybody and then, of course, did impress a few people. And that <laughs> led to getting an agent and getting invited to summer league with the Cleveland Cavaliers. This is the Cleveland Cavaliers of man, what era is this? Uh, John Lucas was the head coach. It was uh, Sagana Jop was like a, a whatever, <laughs> pick in the NBA draft. Uh, Carlos Boozer played for that team. So did Matt Barnes, Trajan Langdon. Anyway, uh, went to training or to summer league with the Cavaliers and, and also played pretty well. I think, again, people didn't realize I was as good as I was because mostly <laughs> third or fourth banana to Marcus Pfizer and Jamal Tinsley at Iowa State. Um, and then that resulted in an invite to training camp with the then world champion Los Angeles Lakers, uh, which was intimidating. As you can imagine, this was the Lakers of Phil Jackson and Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. Um, oh, yeah. That training camp was in Hawaii, which was exciting, but not something I could really enjoy because I was mostly terrified the whole time. Um, <laughs> and I uh, made it. I, I lasted a whopping three weeks in training camp, which is about the time that teams start making cuts. The mechanics, for those who are not familiar, at least back then, there were something like 18 or 19 guys in training camp. Um, and and we were all fighting for like one half of a spot that was remaining. They, the Lakers had made a half guaranteed contract deal with Samaki Walker. Uh, if nobody's going to remember that name, but that was the guy. Uh, so, so we were, you're always in a tough spot in that situation. Cause it was the case that you have to be better good enough that they're going to eat half of a guy's contract uh, in order for you to stick around. So, I probably wasn't, I wasn't really there to try to make that team. It was more like maybe in a year or two, I would end up back with the Lakers. And so according to a plan that was an action that I didn't really understand at the time, I got released, uh, went home to my parents' basement to figure out what came next. One thing that I think is important to remember as a professional athlete, like especially me, kind of marginal professional athlete type, it's not like I knew I was going to then play for 10 years. I hadn't actually played at all yet so i was still thinking you know if i don't get a contract offer in a month or so do i just go get an mba or like what do i do i don't know um right because i wasn't yeah i certainly wasn't um at that point willing to go play for the dodge city legend of the usbl right like two hundred dollars <laughs> a week I would eventually in my career play in some minor leagues, but those were usually with an eye on, I now know I'm good enough to make it to the NBA. So I'll go hang out in the minor leagues whilst we wait for somebody to get hurt or something. Anyway. So point of that story, I guess, is that eventually 
I think I left uh, the U.S. on Halloween of that year. Um, I signed with a team in Greece, um, which was exciting to me. I had never been to Europe. Um, I'd been out of the U.S. a few times, like to Canada and Puerto Rico and <laughs> Hawaii. I realized Hawaii is in the U.S., but that felt like <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I just I got on. I bought a laptop um, and got on an airplane uh, that was destined for. Athens, Greece. And then that's when my whole world started to open up. That Greek team played games not only in Greece, so most European teams play, of course, in their domestic league, but a lot of them will play in international leagues as well. So we would play weekends in Greece, and then on during the week, we would go play either away in France or Turkey or Israel or Poland, and then or at home and one of those teams would come to us. So that really opened my eyes to travel very quickly, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were immediately thrown through the ringer there. And I was going to ask, it sounded like you were pretty excited to go to Greece. Were you like, uh, you know, oh, man, I kind of have to go to Greece. This is kind of scary. Or it was like, oh, man, this is so cool. I get to go play in a, another country. This is going to be great. What was your attitude like kind of going into it? A, a running theme in my life is that I'm always scared. I was not pleased to leave because I didn't know what I was going to get into, but I also knew it was good for me and it was going to be a good experience. I, I think life is like that. and People mm -hmm. don't necessarily always cop to that fact. When somebody says, I'm so excited that I get to do X. <laughs> you're like, well, I think you're excited about how it's probably going to be. But when it comes to the actual like starting with so excited that I got this new job. Mm, are you excited? Because you should be a little scared. Most humans are scared of such things. Um, and I was the same way, right? Where I was intrigued and excited for future Paul to have this experience, but I was really nervous about what I was getting into. Like, was I good enough to play? How would I fit in? Uh, each European team is only allowed or was only allowed at the time to Americans. So you're right. I knew there's only going to be for sure one other guy who speaks English. I don't know what language the coach <laughs> speaks. I don't know where I'm going to live. And so sure enough, like I get there and, and European contracts call for players to get an apartment that's paid for by the team. Right. So they, they usually just have an apartment that they rotate players through. Uh, and similarly, like they need to have a car for you. And when I got to Greece, because as I would eventually learn, the Greeks don't do anything correctly. Um, I went straight to live in a hotel, which was kind of cool. But after four weeks, it was getting very old. I didn't have a car yet. Didn't know my way around at all. So I was very much in a bit of limbo for a very long time, right? Of of not knowing, are they going to keep me around? Is this real? Like, what what's happening here? Um, eventually, they did put me in my own apartment. Got a car, a little Hyundai accent, my first ever stick shift. <laughs> Learned how to drive a stick in Greece, which was weird because it's real hilly. It's good. Um, and that's, I think, that's what then led to the next four or five years, actually. Well, eventually, like nine or 10 years, but the next four years that was a real whirlwind of just going to training camps and getting cut and making it to the NBA and then going to Europe and going to minor league. Like it was just, my life was um, a, the life of a true mercenary. I went where the job was and, and that was my existence.
In the world of wine, there are so many choices, and that's why Blood of Tyrants Wine has tyrants losing their heads. Whether you're looking for a new go-to at home or want to impress your friends at a party, Blood of Tyrants Wine has you covered. And if you're trying to get rid of some pesky tyrants in your life, well, we've got that covered too. Head to briannicholshow.com forward slash wine and get $5 off your order. One more time, briannicholshow.com forward slash wine. Free men don't ask permission, so take a sip. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, I think that's one thing that people People don't actually realize uh, about a lot of uh, American players that play overseas is that nothing is really guaranteed for them. Not even the pay. I, I remember in one of, uh, in your book, you weren't even paid properly what they guaranteed you, right? That is true. My uh, The Greek team, I believe they made the first two payments in full. And when <laughs> I say payments, what was going on, because I think it's always nice to know these things. My contract was for $100,000, which is pretty great to play basketball. It's not huge. I mean, like a lot of guys in those in that league were making $5,000 or $600,000, but I was first year guy. Um, so they made my first two payments, were, which were each about $12,000. They made those payments in cash, which was wild because <laughs> they paid me before practice by handing me an envelope with... <laughs> Whatever that is, what what's that? 120 hundred dollar bills, right? They paid me in dollars. Uh, that I because we didn't have actual lockers, just went. I just put it in my shoe, uh, and then went and practiced. Hoped it was still there when we got back. It was thankfully. Um, <laughs> put that in the bank account, which is harder to get in Europe than you realize, as you may know, Hunter. Um, and uh, then on the third month that I was there. Uh, they handed me a, an envelope that was light. Like I physically could tell this is not, this does not have 120 hundred dollar bills in it. <laughs> and I said, what is going on? And they're like, well, we'll pay you the rest. Avrio, right? Avrio means tomorrow in Greek. So I come back the next day. I'm like, okay, so where's the other $6,000 or whatever the number is. And they're like, oh, Avrio Malaka, Avrio. It turns Always out that Avrio, Avrio means tomorrow in a literal way, but it also figuratively means someday. Um, and so sure enough, they had they had kind of figured out that they could just stay a certain amount behind and just kind of like bleed us out over the course of the year. Um, and that personified my experience in Greece. It it was an, it's it was tough because here I was you know, fresh out of college, I don't, I'm playing pretty well in Greece. And, you know, if, if things had gone differently, I may have just stayed in Europe the whole time. Um, but I didn't feel like I was good enough. It wasn't like I had enough renown to just say to hell with you guys. I'm not practicing or playing until you pay me. Um, so I think they kind of knew they you had me over the barrel a little bit. Um, and then sure enough, end of the year, they have paid me. It, it turns out the, the contract for a hundred thousand dollars has become 105 because we qualified for the playoffs, I think. And by the end of the year, they had paid me 52,000 of the 105. So we uh, sued them and won and the Greek team appealed and we won the appeal. And then because enough teams were in arrears in Greece, the Greek minister, minister of sport, said to all the teams, as long as you promise to never do this again, and as long as you change your name, the name of the team, you'll be forgiven all your debts. 
So that's what happened. They just no way. They just washed them all away. One of the (laughs) things that the postscript to that that I find amazing is that my contract, that first contract I signed, had an option on the second year. The team had an option for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Which, when I signed it, I was like, "That's the most money that anybody could ever have." So why wouldn't I sign this? Well, after they've not paid me and we've sued them and and won the appeal. They had the nerve that fall to say, hey, so Paul, we're going to exercise the option on your contract. And I was like, no, you're not. There's no contract. You didn't pay me the money. And so they they said, well, what about this? What if we wired you $30,000 and then you come back and you play out this year? And I, I remember it being, I didn't know what the term gaslighting was, but it, it was the perfect form of gaslighting because they were so sure of themselves that I was like, maybe I'm crazy this seems wrong. I feel like they should just send me all of the money they owe me. And then we can decide what to do from that. So anyway, needless to say, I did not go back, nor did I ever get that extra $53,000. No, I mean, who would? And that's just such a crazy story. It's unfathomable for people who are, you know, normally just watching the NBA or you just casual people who don't really pay attention. They're like, oh yeah, you know, these guys are guaranteed contracts, making tons of money. And then, you go to overseas and it's just a completely different world. Um, I actually went to a game in Greece. Um, I saw, oh, wow. Pat, yeah, it was awesome. It was on my bucket list. So mm. I got to cross that off and I, I just wanted to see how different it was. And, you know, I usually do pay attention to the European uh, players and teams. I think it's fascinating. It's just different than the NBA, but who did you see? Oh, play? It was a uh, Panathinaikos versus uh, I think it was Barcelona. Um, oh, like a year. Yeah, two big teams. Yeah, okay. big EuroLeague game. So I was fascinated. So I get there and the stadium is at like an Olympic Park complex. It's just mm-hmm. huge. And mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of lost and I'm just trying to follow these people. I'm like, well, they look like basketball fans. Um, and I get there and <laughs> the, the stadium is just littered with graffiti and dudes are smoking like in the stadium, like not giving a crap. And everyone's singing the entire game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the concession stands are hilarious. It's literally just, you know, soda without ice and chips. <laughs> so I'm like, this is awesome. I that all it. sounds very familiar. Um, did, anybody, <laughs> yeah. did anybody, were there any projectiles involved? No, but um, I actually did sit by um, a younger guy and uh, he looks at me and he goes, where are you from? I go, I'm from America. And he's like, He's like, you came all the way here to see this? I'm like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> you're, you're crazy, man. And he shows me a video of, uh, I think their rival team is uh, Olympiacos. Yeah. Yes. He shows me a video of um, one of their former games, and there's flares going off, and people are just jumping. I'm like, dude, why yeah, couldn't was, I go to that game? It was That part was it, – it was wild in a uh, – spectacle spectacular way in the sense of it is a spectacle um and it it felt a little dangerous at times but it was mostly very fun to be a part of there would be like in our games i think so often there were more riot police than actual fans because they had such a reputation for getting out of hand um that year that i played in greece uh, panathinaikos and olympiakos played for the championship and because the fans got so out of control that they one side tipped over the bus, the team bus of the other team. They 
banned fans from the last game and played in front of an empty stadium because they were like, <laughs> we can't have the, the fans. So yeah, there would be Roman candles were a big deal. They would shoot Roman candles across the court at the other team's fans. Um, <laughs> they were, I think kind of frustrated when, uh, Greece switched to the Euro, which happened while I was there, actually, because the old uh, drachma was a very solid chunk of metal that made for an excellent, like, mini weapon frisbee that you could throw <laughs> at the players. They would just launch stuff at us during the games. I never actually got hit, which is amazing. Um, but I did, I remember pretty vividly, like, just dodging, like, a huge two-liter bottle of water that was coming at my head in the Olympiacos. Stadium, which I think is called Peace and Friendship Stadium, which is ironic. <laughs> ironic. <laughs> wow, it, it it's so it's just so weird to me, like just going over here and knowing that you know people are just that crazy. I mean, people are crazy in America for sports and stuff, um, but for some reason, I, I mean, it's just to another level, and mm -hmm. um, it's it's pretty scary if you're you know, a fan or or a player, like you said, like there's just projectiles going everywhere, and you're not sure if you're gonna get hit. Um, I've heard, you know, plenty of stories like, uh, some of my basketball buddy, uh, used to be a coach and the girls team at the high school, he said he played in Egypt and, you know, people were, uh, you know, coming to the game with sticks and just ready to beat someone. I'm like, that is just wild. Sounds right. <laughs> Par for the course. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you played in Greece, um, but you played in quite a bit of different countries too. You played in Spain. Um, did you also play in Russia and China too? I played in Russia um, and I played for three teams in Spain. Um, and then I played for a Chinese team that was headquartered in Los Angeles because they had gotten kicked out of the Chinese league because they would not <laughs> give their best player, a guy named Sun Yue, who actually got drafted by the Lakers eventually, uh, mm -hmm. to either of the two big teams in China. So this was a the team I played for. If I can dial up the memory banks, what I think was called Beijing Iocean. And they were not one of the big, the big boys were the Shanghai Sharks that I think was mm -hmm. Yao Ming's team. And yep. then the, there's an the army team in Beijing. Uh, and those teams, I think, historically had just been able to sort of, in a very Chinese kind of authoritarian way, they could just pluck the best players from all the other places. And, and the owner of my eventual team um, said, you can't do that. And so they kicked him out and he took the entire team to the U S to play in the ABA, which was a minor league that existed at the time. Um, and I was hired along with another American to basically be like the, I don't know, it's almost like a player coach, although I was still young, <laughs> um, in a way to kind of like, if we needed a basket, give it to one of the two. Americans, um, and also to just sort of show the Chinese players how to play. They were so robotic um, that uh, it was comical to, to watch them try to like adapt to American players. Um, so anyway, no, I never played for a team in China, but I did play for a Chinese team. Gotcha. Yeah, because I was looking at uh, your Wikipedia page, which, you know, it's always fun to browse on Wikipedia pages. And you never know what you're going to see. And I was like... I don't remember him playing in the Chinese league or the CBA, but yeah, like you said, it was like pseudo Chinese. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it was uh, that team um, played in a rec center in like East Los Angeles. And because the owner uh, wanted to watch the games back in China, they had rigged it up with basically like 
a closed circuit television system, um, which I thought was a lot and then thought was even more a lot when the liaison, this woman who was at our games, she was not the coach. We had a coach, American guy. She would um, be on her phone with the owner back in China and he would tell her what substitutions to make. So she would run down the bleachers and tap players on the shoulder and send them into the game, (laughs) leaving the coach completely flabbergasted. Like what? I, how, why is that guy in right now? Um, but there wasn't much he could do because the owner had a lot of money and also uh, Chinese uh, oligarch types, much like Russian oligarch types are pretty scary. So you don't necessarily say no to them. Um, I actually didn't last very long with that team. I, I stayed like, I think three weeks or a month. And then I was out. I just, I couldn't take it. It was too weird. Um, and it, I was actually in LA at the time to make a TV pilot and was using the basketball team as kind of a way to stay in shape because I was only 27 and I was not, I mean, I, the, the TV thing was more like a whim, um, which is confusing to any of your listeners. They're like, wait, what? There was a TV show. In the middle? I don't know why. Just, it, it seems weird to me too. Like it's kind of nice to be able to reflect back on these things because sometimes I can't even make sense of the various twists and turns. Oh yeah, yeah. Doing a little more background uh, research on you, and I was like, man, this guy's done everything. Man, he's got an engineering degree. He had a TV show. He's a podcaster. Wrote books. Played basketball. Uh, I think that's fascinating. So yeah, definitely had to have you on and uh, share that experience with uh, everybody. Um, so yeah, you uh, you played in Russia, in Spain, like in in Greece. What was the travel situation kind of like? Um, was it kind of a grind uh, like it was in the NBA? Um, or was it like a little bit better of like a travel schedule? Um, it's, it's much worse if you're playing for a team that is playing European League games also, which, again, most of the teams I played for did have that. So as an example, I played for a team in Kazan, Russia. Kazan is on the Volga River. It's kind of in the middle of the sort of European part of Russia. I wouldn't say it's in the middle of Russia because that would be like God knows where. I'm in the middle actually, of nowhere. I actually have a giant map of Europe on my <laughs> wall, and I'm sort of looking. And, and Kazan is, it's it's in deep, it's deep into Russia, mm. um, and so that meant that if we were going to play games against other Russian teams, we're probably going to have to like connect through somewhere. Um, One of our games, I actually did not go on this trip, but one of our games was in Vladivostok, which is next to Korea, right? It's like three flights away, even though it's still in Russia. Right. Um, And then it gets really complicated when you're playing, like we played a game in Skopje, Macedonia, Macedonia, sorry. Um, And that meant that we had to then fly to Moscow and then fly, I guess, from Moscow, probably to Macedonia. But I wouldn't be surprised if we had to connect somewhere. And these teams, like, they spend a lot of money on players a lot of the times, but they never spent a ton on travel. So <laughs> we'd be sitting in the airport for hours and hours and hours, which is not, I mean, that's a real, well, I don't want to say it's a first world problem because Russia is not a first world country. It's more like a second world country. But right. it, I mean, there are worse things to do, but it was taxing, right? Like, it it's challenging to be so alone. You know, when I played in the, for the Russian team, I did have 
an Australian teammate, Chris Anstey, that I'm still close with. Um, and then Shimon Williams played for that team. But we were all like hired guns. And then it's a lot of Russian guys. And the coach doesn't speak English. And you <laughs> just don't know what's going to happen at any time. Um, so it was pretty, it's stressful. It just, you're on, you're like constantly in this state of heightened stress. Um, I just, I can remember feeling in Russia, like I might disappear at any time and I'm not sure anybody would know how to find me. Um, <laughs> which, you know, seems kind of, I don't know, exaggerative, but it, it, there really was this sense, like, especially in Kazan, it was just so far from everything that. I didn't, I felt uneasy all of the time that I was there. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And uh, I know that, you know, that your experience with Russia was probably way different from Spain. Spain was way different from Greece. Where, where did you like uh, playing the most as a, as a home base? I think the fact that I got to stay in Spain for two solid years, uh, right at the end of my career was a contributor to me loving Spain. Um, I don't know that Spain was necessarily better than if I had played in France or Germany or Italy or stayed in Greece or something like that. Uh, other than the fact that the Spaniards mostly paid me on time. Um, <laughs> but like just that consistency was really formative and educational. Um, knowing that I was, it's not that I knew I would be around. Cause again, all of these contracts are tenuous at best. Um, but I had some sense that, that, people there were starting to know who I was. Um, I had kind of found my level Spain, the Spanish league, I think still is. And, and was then the second best league in the world, like without question. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean that like every year a Spanish team will win the year league, but just from, from a top to bottom standpoint, it's the best run. Like you're going to have good teams one through 18 basically. Um, and so it was really gratifying for me to have found a place where, it was really kind of my level. You know, I could, I could be there and score eight or 10 points a game and get some rebounds and, and have a real impact on whether the team won or lot or not. Um, the NBA was probably just slightly beyond me. Um, I think I could have been a, I could have been an eighth or ninth guy in the NBA and you would never have known the difference. Be like, Oh yeah, this guy played for six years in the NBA. Um, but, but in Spain, I was, I was much more comfortable. It felt right. And I think they, liked the way I played there um, that, you know, we now, whatever this has been, it's only been 10 to 12 years since I stopped playing, but the NBA has really embraced the analytics of non-scoring. Um, I think the Europeans without meaning to had embraced that much earlier, like to toot my own horn a little bit. Like I just understood how basketball worked. I was, I was really, cerebral as a player in the sense that I just could, I knew how things were going to work because I'd played so much. I just played so much basketball. And I think that was valued in Europe um, and is now starting to be valued here, but we now do it through like a numbers way. We're like, well, yeah, you know, here's his whatever P E R plus minus. I, I think like if I watch a basketball game, I can just kind of tell like, Oh, that guy has a lot of impact on winning. Um, this other guy might be scoring a lot, but he's not really that helpful to the actual progression of, of winning. And so in some ways, the U.S., we were so fascinated. I actually have a book here that I love. Um, 
called the tyranny of metrics, right? Oh, um, that was a coincidence. I didn't actually plan to have to pull that out, but, <laughs> but like, we're so fascinated with like, well, what do the numbers say? And when I was playing, a lot of the numbers were just like, does he score a lot of points? I remember so vividly uh, getting cut by the Atlanta Hawks and it was my second year out of school. I was close to ready to like be on an NBA team, but not quite when they cut me. They handed me a shot chart. They said, here's all of the shots you took during training camp. I was like, wow, I didn't realize anybody was keeping track of that, but okay. And they <laughs> said, you know, you're good from here. You're not as good from here. And da, 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 da. And, and Paul, we'd love to see you look for your shot more. And I was like, what? I mean, I didn't have the guts <laughs> to say this because I didn't, I didn't understand. But I was like, you're paying, at the time they were paying Sharif Abdul-Rahim to score 20 points a game. They had a guy named Theo Ratliff. They had Jason Terry. At a whole bunch of dudes at Glenn Robinson, who all Glenn Robinson does at the time is shoot, right? Right. Uh, so what I should have said and was thinking was like, you don't want me to shoot. And I understand that. <laughs> like, I'm here to move the ball around, to be in the right place, to play defense. Like, so, I mean, not coincidentally, the Hawks were bad at the time, but I think there, it was frustrating sometimes when I got to the NBA, it it was still behind in some of these like more advanced measures of how people actually contribute to wins and losses. Yeah. That's so weird. I mean, you, you would think that the NBA would just be so far more advanced than that than the, than the Euro league. But when I watch Euro league games, they play much better team basketball than they do uh, in the NBA. The NBA is usually a lot of isolation, a lot of selfishness going on, but the Europeans, it's just such a different sport to watch. And I, I'm sitting there like as a coach, I'm like, man, this is so cool, man. They're running these plays. Like they're very fundamental. Um, there's a lot less like selfishness going on. Um, but that that's crazy difference between the metrics. I didn't even really know that. That's, that's pretty good insight there. Um, yeah, do you I mean, feel the same some, way? Some of it might be in Europe. The coaches, as you probably know, a lot of times the coaches actually go to college to learn how to coach. Whereas right here it's just like you used to play do you want to try coaching <laughs> um and i think there's also just a there's a mythology especially in the nba but maybe in all american sports of if you don't have the talent you just won't be very good which i think is really defeatist and weird um right and i think that european teams will try to scheme a little bit more um and, you know, there are also fewer games in Europe. I think talent does win out when you have 82 games because it's just a war of attrition. Oh, um, yeah. But when you're, you know, in Spain, we would play, God, I don't know, 34 games in the regular season, um, which isn't as many, obviously. Duh. Right. Um, but you can kind of like scheme out game after game and maybe come up with a plan. Um, we One time when I was playing for a team in Menorca, um, a team which was just always at the bottom of the standings. In fact, I had been brought to try to save the team from relegation my first year there. And <laughs> anyway, the the next year, or maybe that first year, it doesn't matter. We we ended up beating in this team called Unicaja, which is a Euroleague team that we had no business beating. But it was because we had had time to come up with a plan, and they had underestimated us. And and so it was it was also a real upset, you know, in the NBA if. Um, so I don't watch basketball, so I don't know about this. <laughs> Who's a bad team? The Sacramento Kings? Yeah, they're pretty bad. 
So if the Kings beat the Warriors on a random February night, nobody really cares because it's just like there's so many games. They're going to lose some of them. But yeah. when, you only, when you squash the season down, you know, then those games become much more exciting uh, and much more interesting. That's another, you know, if we're going to really get into the problems with the NBA, there's just too many games. It's one of the main ones. It really is. I know the difference between youth sports, too, is that um, and I was learning this as a coach. Uh, the European model, they practice way more than they play. And then it's kind of opposite in American culture. Like we play way more than we practice. Um, mm-hmm. And we were starting to see like a wave of that with like USA basketball. They're trying to in, uh, incorporate that with uh, the youth model because, um, you know, kids just need to get better and they need to be crafted before they get, you know, to the next level. Um but yeah, I thought that was that's super fascinating. Mm. Well, hey, Paul, I want to make sure I honor your time. I appreciate that you came on the show. I know we're running short here, and we could probably talk seriously all night. Yeah, <laughs> about I mean, if you, if, travel. You, if you wound me up, I would just give me three beers, and I'll just tell stories for about six <laughs> hours, which would be no no good for anybody. <laughs> but yeah, for the sake of podcast time, uh, hey, I seriously appreciate it. This is a really fun conversation. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will get all, a lot out of it. Uh, before we let you go, um, what would you have as like the best advice for someone who's uh, probably not like on the cusp of NBA, but they're playing in Europe? Like, what would you give them as as good advice and preparation? Hmm. Um, well, the one thing that I would tell my younger self, which might be the best way to look at this is I wish I had taken more time between teams and not panicked to think like, I got to go sign now with another team. I had a zillion injuries, which I'm still kind of dealing with. And I think that because I was unsure of myself, I didn't have the patience to go ahead and take the nine months to rehab or to to spend the money on the trainer. Um, when you're in the throes of those first few years, it doesn't feel like it's going to last very long in the sense of it doesn't feel like your career is going to last very long. Um, and I think as with everything, you sort of have to plan that it's going to last a really long time. If it doesn't, that's fine. That's just the way the cookie crumbled. Um, but I think my experience was so haphazard. It was just like, I was just making it up as I went. Um, (laughs) And so I wish I had at times just slowed down. I mean, the easy thing to say would be slow down and enjoy it. And that could be true too, but I don't know that that was my main problem. It was more, you know, feeling rushed to now go on to the next team, which can be tough when you have an agent where you're like, well, is he going to (laughs) give up on me if I don't, you know, sign this deal or whatever the situation might be. But some of that is just a matter of self-belief and self-confidence of understanding that it probably will keep going for a while. Yeah. I mean, what an experience though. And I know that you've, uh, you know, taken your experience of the ups and downs and translated into professional life, which, you know, we should always be doing uh, with any experience. So uh, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm glad that you came on the show and, you know, just shared what you're doing now and, all the cool things that you did with uh, the European and then and just the craziness of, of that type of world. Um, but where can uh, people kind of just keep track of you and, uh, you know, follow you on social media? Um, probably best is Twitter, which is at Paul Venturely, And my Instagram handle is the same. Um, 
And if you have, if you want to send me a note, uh, write me at uh, my so-called career at gmail.com. That's my old school, like basketball slash writing email address. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah. Hey, appreciate your time. Um, yeah, you're welcome back on, on the show anytime. And, uh, hey, if, and if you're watching, if you guys want to subscribe, like comment and share, share this with people, uh, you would think it might find interesting or basketball fans or travel fans or just in general, but Hey, thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Brian Nichols show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Enjoying the audio version of the show? Then you'll love our YouTube channel. Be sure to head over there and subscribe. And if you're new to The Brian Nichols Show, be sure to head to your favorite podcast catcher and click download all unplayed episodes so you don't miss one of our nearly 500 episodes that will be sure to leave you educated, enlightened, and informed. If you got value from today's episode, can you do me a favor and head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash support and leave us a $5 donation? And by the way, have you given the show a five-star review yet? If not, head to Apple Podcasts and tell folks why you listen to the program and don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe too. Follow me on social media at B Nichols Liberty. And again, if you'd be so kind, please consider making a donation to the Brian Nichols Show at briannicholsshow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. Faced with an uncertain future, many business owners and technology professionals don't have the time needed to invest in their business technology strategies. And as a result, they're afraid of their technology getting outdated and putting their company and customers' information at risk. The digital future is already here, but with all different choices in the marketplace, it's difficult to know which one will be the best fit for you and your strategic vision. Imagine having the peace of mind that your business is backed by the right technology investments that are tailored for your specific needs. Hi, I'm Brian Nichols, and I've helped countless business owners and technology professionals just like you, helping you make informed decisions about what technologies are best to invest in for your business. Voice, bandwidth, cybersecurity, business continuity, juggling all the aspects of business technology is messy. Let me help. Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash help and sign up for a free one-on-one consultation with yours truly to dig deep into where you see your company heading and how we can align your business technology towards those goals. Again, that's briannicholsshow.com forward slash help to get your simplified business technology started today.